0: Start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. The RHS-endorsed range of top-quality joinery includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, stores and more for people who want to make the best of their outdoor space. The products are made in our Essex workshop from responsibly sourced timber, and with each order, we plant a new tree. Get 15% off RHS-endorsed prestige products at The Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order.
1: I think the greatest gift that i have got from gardening was the ability to recognize plants and thus to enhance every aspect of my life every single walk to the shops or trip to the park suddenly became an excursion with friends and suddenly being able to see these things almost for the first time despite the fact that they'd been there in front of my eyes for for years was a revelation and it did profoundly change my life
2: that's a clip from an interview we did with writer and gardener ben dark He's one of the many contributors we've had on this podcast who've zeroed in on the particular moment in their life when they started coming out of plant blindness, a moment when the world comes into sharp focus. I experienced that myself, but in a slightly different way. My mother was an enthusiastic gardener with a garden full of plants, and she had a plant encyclopedia, And one day, aged about 17, I was leafing through it and was absolutely stunned by the enormous variation in plants that are available for gardens. And this idea of enriching your experience in a garden or park or nature reserve through new bits of plant-based knowledge is the overarching theme today. We're exploring small but useful nuggets of information that have the potential to change the way we interact with our surroundings this growing season. We're getting seasonal tips on grow-your-own, things like training and pruning apple trees and preparing allotments for the busiest time of year. And, as you may have guessed, we're delving into plant names and the system behind our classifications. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. To start, we're off to the Newt in Somerset to take a gander through their parabola, a fabulously apple-filled walled garden. There we're getting an inside look on creative ways to train and prune these trees.
3: My name's Andy Lewis, and I'm the head of ornamentals and also lead the fruit team here at the Newt in Somerset. It's just a little over 689 apple trees in here, 330 different varieties, and we're doing our best to celebrate everything apple here at the Newt. Early spring, we get the the blossom display, which is wonderful to see the colour You know, early on, to see the bees pollinating them and finding nectar and food. And then I love the blossom, but I love eating the fruit as well. So we get to dive in and try all the different varieties and cultivars we have here. We're learning every year, we learn more about the different tasting notes of the fruit and also the storing potential of fruits. And actually for us as garden team to try it is great, but to be able to give it to our visitors and our members to come and taste the fruit and, and to learn a little more about heritage varieties or potentially varieties that they tried when they were younger but they can't find in the shops and those kind of things. So right now we're standing in the Prabola, which is our walled garden. Named the Prabola because of its unique D-like shape. The parabola is laid out in a maze-like structure to echo the Brock era and the formality of how the garden structure was at that time. And we're standing in front of our French trees here. So we have around 30 different French varieties of trees. The one we're standing in front of here is a variety called Renette Ananas. Translates as as pineapple. I don't know a lot of French, but most of it's apple related, I I guess. So ripens to a a bright yellow fruit. Medium in size, I'd say, but crisp, juicy, and and delicious. So certainly a, a favorite for taste. This particular one is trained in a palmette verrier shape, so it's flat against the wall. Basically you have four vertical cordons that you're training up along the training system, and then the spurs come off from the, your main vertical cordons. The dessert fruit trees are all planted out in county of origin. So as you walk around the wool garden, which is laid out in a maze-like structure, you'll come along county boundaries or borders that are marked up in the stones and those varieties or, or cultivars have originated from there so we have them displayed in that way. This particular one that we're standing in front of the variety is Rennes de Renette, so queen of queens of apples, so it's reputably the original apple that was used for the Tarte Tatin by the Tatin sisters in France. So the Rennes de Renette is actually grown in a sphere-like structure, it has two, four, six, eight individual arms that are coming from the main leader and it's probably around almost two meters tall now and it's pretty much filled its final form again crisp and juicy ripens to a blushed red color and yeah it's a good eater so if you're here in the garden you're at the top plateau at the sphere apple you're welcome to pick it late summer so predominantly all dessert fruit in here but we do have a collection of crab apples along the wall as well the idea was to get even more blossom in that peak period and also because the fruits aren't going to be picked by me or our visitors quite so readily the fruits remain on the tree until sort of mid late winter we have red sentinel golden gem and also Jellykin and Comtes de Paris. The Comtes de Paris is probably a favorite for me in terms of when the fruit ripens, it has a bright yellow color to it. We always get a lot of fruit, wonderful blossom. We prune and train our trees more in the continental style in terms of we prune our trees four times a year, whereas perhaps you might only prune them twice a year, which is absolutely fine. But we find with this continued and regular pruning, we're able to check the spurs, check the trees a little more and really work on getting our trees as formal and as refined as possible. So in February is when we do our winter prune, so we're going to work on the leaders of our trees and also work on our spurs, simplifying them. So what you can do this time of year, because you don't have the foliage and you can really see the the bare bones of the trees, you can see where you need to work on them. And if they look congested this time of year without foliage and without leaves, it's gonna get even busier when the growth is on there. So the idea of spur simplification is we're trying to to reduce our spurs, but still continue to get fruit buds and get fruit. Of course, the the end goal always is, is to have continued fruit on the tree and also to have fruit top to bottom. It's almost a little bit like the little and often approach. People always say, Wow, there's so many trees to do, but actually because we attack them so regularly, it actually makes the work we do a little less of an arduous task. We want people to take away the enthusiasm or the knowledge to do tree training themselves and to really give them the confidence that they can do it. You know, Whether it's through talking to them in garden or, or through our fruit pruning workshops, it's really a chance to share knowledge and really Give people the ideas to train trees and I think it's such a relevant thing with smaller gardens nowadays you know we have what we have here within you know it's only six years old now in terms of a lot of these fruit trees so you'll soon get a form and you'll soon get fruit so yeah that's what we want people to take away as well as the tasty fruit
2: Thanks there to Andy The Newt in Somerset is an RHS partner garden, which means members get in for free at selected times. We've included details in our show notes if you'd like to visit. I grew up in West Country Orchards, not so far from where the Newt is in Somerset, and my favourite apples are Ashmead's Kernel, which is a lovely, nutty, russet apple, Adam's Pearmain, which is very disease resistant and easy to grow. That is one of the few apples that's nice to eat after Christmas, and the Cox apple like Sunset and Kids Orange Red. I'd love those aromatic, spicy apples, but I'm not so keen on the juicy Braeburn type fruits. And speaking of Grow Your Own, we recently got a listener question on allotment preparation. Fiona from London wrote, Dear RHS Podcast, I have just been given the keys to a five-rod allotment plot. I have visited it, and apart from a few brambles and long grass, it looks in reasonable condition. There are two beds more or less ready. I have no idea what was grown in the past. What does the team suggest for first tasks? I don't have access to a greenhouse, but I do have plenty of windowsills at home. So I thought we'd return to my own allotment, where I could give my two cents on where Fiona should start. Well, this afternoon, we're standing in my allotment, which is at the very end of winter. And when I first took on this allotment uh, 25 years ago, it was covered in thick grass, thick cooch grass, which has got long, horrible rhizomes. And it's now cropped in a sort of more sustainable way with cover crops over the winter. But half the plot is actually covered in winter crops as well. So we've got carrots and parsnips that are waiting to be dug, leeks that are waiting to be dug, lots of cabbages and Brussels sprouts and kale and sprouting broccoli and overwintered cauliflowers to fill in that hungry gap between now and the middle of June. So it's a very, very well-stocked allotment. But the main reason we're here at my allotment this afternoon is to answer Fiona's question, to have a bit of inspiration, to have some ideas that might help her. Fiona said that she has two plots, two beds, perhaps they're raised beds, that are already clear. Well, that's great, because that can be used for the early things. But what about the rest of it covered in grass? Traditionally, um, one would dig that to so take a spade and you would laboriously dig it, turning the soil over and burying the weeds so that they are uh, killed by the digging process, leaving bare soil to sow. Um, That's quite a lot of work, and we tend not to do that as much nowadays. It's still a a good method, and when I'm taking on a new plot, what I do is I dig a strip a metre wide, and when I leave a gap of grass and weeds, and then dig another strip of around a metre wide and then plant things like pumpkins and potatoes whose sprawling foliage will spread out over the undug areas and kill it ready for next year. However, nowadays, people often use the no-dig method, which is a great method. Here, you put down a thick layer of cardboard... And uh, that's usually a couple of thicknesses at least. And then on top of that, you put about six inches, that's 15 centimetres, of very well rotted compost. And then you plant into the compost. The your plants grow through the compost. They meet the cardboard, which is, uh, by the time they get down that deep, will have rotted away. And they can root into the underlying soil. The only downside of this method is you've got to have a lot of compost. And uh, compost is quite expensive. But there's no law that says it all has to be one or the other you can dig some and compost what you can and uh, with any luck uh, you'll have a nice easily cultivated soil for the following year once you've got soil ready for sowing you then have a process of sowing all through from the middle of march say through to the uh, middle of may think about what you need what you like to eat but as a rough rule of thumb things that are well worth growing are salads of every kind so whether that's lettuce or rocket or radish or chicory or endive whatever you like that's a really good thing because it tastes really nice fresh cut from the allotment um, and it surpasses the supermarket product Then the other thing that gives you a lot of produce um, are salad onions which are easily grown very easily grown and uh, beetroot. Beetroot is an enormously productive crop. Sometimes it's quite easy to have more beetroot than you can possibly cope with. So you don't need to devote a very large area to it. And then you have to remember that things, say, like a lettuce, it grows. It takes about 120 days to grow, and then it's over. So when you need to, another set of lettuces planted maybe... 15 days later or 20 days later than the first sowing so you've got a succession so you need to plan to have a succession sow one crop wait a bit sow another crop wait a bit and so on and then you've got crops to harvest all through the summer the way vegetables grow is that they need a lot of light, and the highest light is in June and July, so you want as much leaf as you can possibly get for things like potatoes and carrots and parsnips by June, and for your pumpkins and courgettes and sweet corn by July, and then they can take advantage of that brief period in Britain, the very high light levels. Sometimes it's best to buy plants from the garden centre in the first year to save a bit of work and space. And the things that are least worthwhile growing are things that are cheap to buy in the shops. So that's cabbages and brussels sprouts and swedes, and they take up a lot of space. If you grow a brussels sprout, you have to sow it in March, plant it out in May, and then you don't harvest it until the following December. So it uses up a lot of your garden. So it's best possibly to go easy on those leeks. I would say that there's an exception for the price there they cost in the shops. Um, leeks are well worth growing because they all have to be harvested by hand. You know, onions and potatoes are harvested by machinery and so they're very cheap, but leeks have to be harvested by hand. They're expensive, but they're very easy to grow. There's a thing called crop rotation where you grow plants that are related to each other in a different place each year. On a five rod plot I wouldn't get too worried about that because there's not enough space to practice a crop rotation as it's described in the books. but. Try, if you can, to grow uh, cabbages on a separate plot each year and onions and leeks on a separate plot and peas and beans on a separate plot just to reduce the, the damage that root disease can cause. But everything else you can pretty much mix in together wherever it's suitable. And there's a rather fun thing called intercropping where you plant things between each other. So if you're going to grow some sweet corn, for example... They're big plants planted a long way apart so at the same time or slightly before you sow or plant some little plants like lettuces and radishes and you harvest those and then the sweet corn and the Brussels sprouts grow bigger so you get two crops and one bit of land. One of the first things that Fiona would be well advised to do is to um, make very good friends with a long-established plot holders, because they've always got more plants than they need and you can almost certainly scrounge a few plants which will enable you to try a wider range of crops and uh, save you having to raise some stuff yourself which can always be handy because everyone has failures so uh, it's very much a social effort. And of course, no allotment is complete without an allotment shed. A polytunnel is quite a big thing to start off with, so you might want to invest in some cloches first. And sometimes you have to put up some fences. If, as happens here, um, there's lots of deer about, you'll need a deer fence and um, a rabbit fence. And it's also well to have enough stakes, so you're not rushing around in a panic of are growing peas. Typically, you might use some chicken netting and some sticks to hold them up. And it's well to have some nets to protect things like uh, any soft fruit you want to grow from the birds. And there's a wonderful, expensive thing called insect-proof mesh, of which I have a very great deal, which you put over things like leeks to keep off the leek moth, and carrots and parsnips to keep off the carrot fly. It's um, foolproof stuff, so it's well worth investing in some of that. And quite often, allotments will have their own trading shed, and they'll sell things at cost. So that's an economical way of buying things. I think after the first two-year learning curve, allotments become really fulfilling. It's very exciting the first year. The second year, the excitement is beginning to wear off. The third year, you're getting pretty good at it and getting good crops and people are coming along and saying, oh, that looks nice. And uh, gradually it takes over your life. If you're having issues on your allotment or you have general horticultural questions you'd like addressed on the show we'd love to hear from you send us your queries at podcasts at rhs.org.uk and finally for our last story of the day we're chatting about plant names as part of a series we're calling just ask with jenny laville here's jenny our show's editor
4: I've been working at the RHS for a while now, I'm the show's editor and I do write some articles for the website, but it occurs to me that every now and then we do tend to throw around horticultural terms without really explaining what they are, we kind of assume knowledge. So I wanted to start a series where I ask the questions that we're probably all thinking but perhaps have never thought to actually ask. So for the first instalment of the series I thought we'd take on a big one, botanical names. And here with the answers is James Armitage, the RHS botanist and editor of both The Plant Review and Orchid Review. Hi James, how are you?
1: I'm fine. Hello Jenny.
4: Thanks for for talking to me about this. So can we start with uh, the big question? Why do we need botanical names?
1: Well, we need botanical names for the same reason we need any other sorts of names. We don't get very far in conversations without nouns. But why we need them to be in Latin is a difficult question and I think that's one that really annoys gardeners, annoys Uh, annoys them because they're difficult to remember but the thing with latin is it's a dead language so it's unchanging and it belongs to no one so if we chose a living language for all our scientific names like swahili or english or portuguese or what have you you can imagine how irritated um, Mm and the ferrari and ructions there would be around this so so latin's equally annoying for everybody in the world and that's that's why we use it
4: But if we all know what plant's called, why do we have to change it and have this big long name for it?
1: Well, do we know what it's called? I mean, we know what we're talking about, but does the other person know what we're talking about? So we have to have an agreed kind of nomenclature, a naming system for these things, and then all the information that we associate with that plant go with that name
4: so like what is a sage to me might not be a sage to somebody else is that what you mean
1: well yeah it's where sage stops and starts doesn't it so rosemary for instance used to be rosemarinus but now it's a species of salvia so does that become a sage and when we say sage we tend to think of you know the the herb um, and you wouldn't tend to include rosemary in that you'd feel a bit confused in a supermarket, if you bought sage and it was a rosemary, so the point of, of all naming, really, is clarity, I think.
4: They're so long, though, mm. aren't they? They can be really, really long.
1: There's no question that glyptostroboides is harder to say than Dawn Redwood. The more you go on with it, the more they, they have a sort of rhythm and you come across the same sort of epithets. Um, time
4: okay. and again. can we actually look at what the name or the epithet is mm. made up of? in detail
1: we can yeah so there's two parts generally to plant names the basic unit of botanical names is the species name and that's made up these days of two parts which is the genus name and the species name and that is the brainchild of a chap called Linnaeus and he came up with this binomial system in his great book, Species Plantarum, 1753. And before that, names had been a bit like sort of sentences, descriptive sentences. And so you want to talk unwieldy, and the whole thing gets very out of hand very quickly. So what he did was he said, right, well, we're going to encapsulate all this information in two names. And it's like, it's like a surname. Right. That's the genus name, so Primula. And then you would have the species name, which is like the given name, Vulgaris.
4: Right, and, uh, but then there's quite often a third one, isn't there? There's like the ones in the speech marks.
1: Yeah, so those are the cultivars. They're not usually in Latin. They sometimes are the older ones, but they're not usually in Latin, and they come under a different code of nomenclature, which is the cultivated code, because sometimes we need to talk about plants, hybrid selections, things like that, which are useful only from a human perspective for gardening or for agriculture. And so we're using these separately from just the the botanical uh, system which names plants in the wild
4: oh okay so you wouldn't get one of those on a wild plant. it's only on cultivated plants
1: well yes that's right so you'd have for instance cornus sanguinea midwinter fire so cornus sanguinea is the plant as we know it in the wild it covers a huge amount of variation but midwinter fire is a particular clone a particular individual that we can propagate so it's always the same And so we want a name for that particular individual because we think it's really, really pretty and we want loads of it. And so we need to pick out an individual name for that plant. And so that's why we end up with this combination of the the Latin name telling us what species it belongs to and then the individual name telling us
4: Right, the name okay. Of that
1: particular clone So that it's, it's becoming
4: it. increasingly, special, increasingly it? specialised. Increasingly um, specialised. And okay.
1: as, that's a good thing to, to know about names that as you move from left to right, right, you're getting more and more and more specialised. So a genus is quite broad, a species is a bit more narrow, a subspecies is more narrow again, a variety, even more narrow, form, even more narrow. And a cultivar tends to be just one individual, a right. single clone.
4: Okay. So can I ask about some of the other things I've seen on plant names, on labels? Yeah. Like sometimes you get a name and it's in capitals for some reason, yeah. or it'll have a TM next it or something. Are those cultivar names?
1: Those are cultivar names. So these days you'll often get plants being registered for plant breeders' rights, and they'll often be registered under a cultivar name, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So a Vipo, you might see a lot of clematis starting with a Vipo, a Vipo 007 or a Vipo 007. Five, or whatever, and they're Raymond Everson's clematis all get registered for plant breeder's rights with those sort of code names, and those are the actual cultivar names. So they're just as much a cultivar name as Jenny's White or any of these other.
4: Yeah, so he's just not been very imaginative with he, the name.
1: He's not because he what he wants to do is choose a, a commercial name or a selling name that he can actually sell it under, and then maybe even change that selling name at a later date if it becomes uncommercial for some reason but it's always going to be associated with its actual cultivar name, which is that thing you often see in, in brackets right, afterwards. Okay. So no matter what it's sold under, that's, that's okay. the identifying thing. And that's why you get these strange listings and things like RHS Plant Finder where lots of care is taken over these bizarre-looking sort of code names.
4: Sedum Hispanicum Var Minus. What's the var? Within botanical
1: names, the species name, you can have different grades of variation. So you might have a different population that looks just a little bit different, but not enough to make it a different species. And so you might say, I'm going to call that subspecies. And so a level of variation down again would be var. So this is really quite a minor characteristic. And then after that, you might have former. And that tends to be like a single gene right um, switch so flower color or okay.
4: so this is what you were saying earlier about the, f- the further to the right of the name you're getting the yeah. more specific
1: yeah so the the var minus might might mean a you know a little variant for instance which is very all very useful for gardeners to know so you'll find in in gardens a lot of these what we call infraspecific names these subspecies and vars and formers and things are recognized but they're not so much these days in wild Okay. Wild. Did, what was
4: that, infraspecific?
1: Infraspecific. So inside the species, right. essentially, you have little variants. Because they, they often break down in, in wild populations. They don't really stand up. You get lots of intermediates connecting these different states. But of course, in gardens, you just have one or two mm. clones. And so a little one, you know, we, we want to know if there's a little one because we might have a, a little spot in our garden just, just right.
4: So in that case, the minus literally means little. Yes. Okay, that's confusingly straightforward, given the topic. Well, yeah. Sometimes it can be that simple, I guess. So just to wrap up, to summarise, just make sure it's in my head. Carlinaeus decided to come up with a naming system so that we could all know exactly what we were talking about with the plants. Exactly. So he came up with a system which is based on a genus, which is like a surname, and then there's a species, which is like a first name, and then you can get more and more specific with cultivars and trade names, and basically, with long plant names, the further to the right of the plant, the more specific you're getting. Is that right? By jove, she's got it. Oh my gosh! (laughs) I'm really pleased with that, actually. I do actually understand that now.
2: big thanks to Jenny and James. If you have topics you'd like addressed in our Just Ask with Jenny series, do let us know. And if you'd like more on naming conventions, check out an episode we did four years ago called Untangling Latin Names. We've included a link in our show notes. Before we go, I wanted to share a few things I've been up to in the garden this week. My main task has been clearing up after winter, gathering up dead vegetation and fallen sticks and composting them and getting the ground ready for planting and sowing. I've also been sowing seeds indoors, uh, particularly broad beans and lettuces and some onions. While outside, I've started sowing peas and broad beans. It's very early yet, but I I live in the south in a very dry, sandy district, so I I can push on ahead. I've got a bit of pruning to finish, taking care that there's no bird nests in the way as I cut back various evergreens. And it's also time to feed the garden. Ornamental plants don't need much fertilizer, but where plants look a little worse for wear, addressing an organic-based slow-release fertilizer like blood, fish and bone will be very much appreciated. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening.
0: As we look to the year ahead, start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. Our range of top quality products endorsed by the RHS includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, sheds, and stores, and all made in our workshop in Essex. Make the most of your outdoor space and get 15% off RHS-endorsed prestige joinery products at The Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order.